Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation. Let's kick off part two. I'm I'm conscious that you have worked in a number of different industries, and I and you know we we see in our own work with with lots of young and emerging companies that that that's a very positive positive thing and and I can understand why a business like luminance would want to bring somebody in with your with your experience are there any particular industries or roles that you've had that, that have given you something valuable that you've brought to scaling up a business because you were you were employee number four I think in in luminance yes uh, so when I came along there were um, the you know the three founding technologists um, and then you know and then we actually brought in um, a lawyer as well um, to be you know, to help us understand how lawyers think uh yes so um so in terms of businesses that i've worked in i think your first job is always quite um is, is always quite formative and i worked in manufacturing i actually worked in clothing manufacturing when i when i first graduated so in my head everything is kind of manufacturing but also when you're working in an environment like that and you know working in you know in, in retail of goods at the end of the day or wholesale and retail of goods you know it's the margins are so tight and you have to focus on the details and control the way that you operate and be so disciplined in order to make any money at all. You know, the difference between you know, making a profit and, ma- and going bust is, you know, is going to be in the detail all the time. So I think it's a very good grounding for any industry actually working in that environment. And we talked a little bit earlier about um, principles, and I'm conscious that the, you've worked in the financial services industry. The financial service industry is principles driven. Um, in terms of of how good businesses evolve in the future, do, do you think that that the principles based approach rather than the regulatory approach to um, some of the global issues that we face is is the right approach? I think that's a really interesting movement at the moment. Um, I went to this conference last September, which was you know young lawyers from all around the world um, getting together in um, in Rome for almost a whole week to talk about environmental sustainability goals and it was really great it was really inspiring and there were people there from the world trade organization and you know speakers from all of these really interesting places but then i was thinking they're thinking why is this relevant to a bunch of lawyers and i sat down with um a lawyer from prague in one of the coffee breaks and asked him you know what what how does this, this is all great and very worthy but what does this actually mean for you and he said well it's very straightforward you know my client trusts me more than they trust their own spouses a lot of the time. So if I have this understanding of the world and then project that onto my client's decision making, it'll make an impact. I hadn't thought about it in those terms, but actually the more people I talked to, the more consistent that attitude was. So um, so I think there's this sort of thread at the moment of that focus on your impact on the environment being working in lots of different ways. I was talking to a lawyer from New York recently about the equator principles, which I hadn't come across before then. But when you start to look, you realise that they're everywhere, actually. There are banks, hundreds of banks all around the world have signed up to the equator principles. And the equator principles are to do with environmental sustainability goals, but they're being used as a proxy for understanding the level of control that a business has over its operations and therefore the level of risk inherent in that business. Uh, kind of interesting. It's a win. You know, the way that you treat the environment is a window into how likely you are to be sustainable as a business in the long term from a financial perspective as well. So I think it's you know it's only a positive thing to think that way. It's fascinating, isn't it? Thinking about the the uh, equator principles, it's it's a. 
I think a number of the sustainability projects that we're seeing, and we're talking to to some le- sustainability leaders as part of part of the um, the Zebra Talk um, podcast series, that they're very much about strategy and they're very much about governance. And I think what we've seen is a move uh, to those those issues not being something that a department does somewhere else in the corner, probably as part of a PR campaign, into actually being much more fundamental both to the organisational purpose and employer brand within an organisation, but also to um, having a a sustainable economic business model where where actually recognising that the the consumer market is is reacting reasonably strongly to these issues and you have a commercial problem if you're not genuinely and authentically engaged in the agenda. And people won't want to work for you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've definitely seen a, a, um, a move... Or, a, or a, a confluence of the external brand and the employer brand. I think the, the organisations that are most successful at the moment um, in our own client base are those that have aligned their their employer brand with the messaging and the authenticism of the messaging in the external market. Because you know, particularly in businesses, and there'll be many listeners who are involved in businesses that, that, that live and die by their people, you can't have a separate external brand and a, and a different look and feel internally. You, the authenticism of the experience of working with your staff comes from a genuine employer brand. Yeah, and the trouble is if you scratch the surface, you know, it, you'll, soon, you'll soon be found out. Well, brands are easily won and destroyed as well, which is, which is an interesting, interesting theme. Within Luminance, are, you, are there any particular um, issues that you're focused on the, from the good business perspective? Hmm. Um, I suppose we've always been we've always been a pretty diverse team. Um, weirdly, though, I think you know I got a bit embarrassed about this last year. I was on a panel talking about unconscious bias, and it honestly hadn't occurred to me until I sat on that panel that I'm six foot tall, and so are seventy percent of my management team. Certainly, all of the women, um, which made me realise you know I'm doing it. I'm hiring people who look a bit like me. Um, because they walk into the room and, you know, we... We're, it feels comfortable. It feels comfortable. And that's what's always gone on. So, um, so, so I think you know, the fact that we're very diverse is probably a, you know, a factor of that rather than anything else. But we have you know, been trying to address that a little bit more consciously and trying to kind of you know, account for it when we're looking at the results of the interviews that we're doing. Um, I think from a sustainability point of view, I suppose... Um, one thing about what we do is, you know, this this is technology which can be deployed any, anywhere in the world without actually, without an engineer turning up with any kind of screwdriver to plug it in. You don't need to send somebody to go and deploy luminance. You can do it all remotely, which is great, except that what I've come to realise is at the end of the day, it's still a people business. You know, the difference between winning a contract and not will have a lot more to do with the person who turns up and spends time with that customer on site and reassures them and answers their questions and helps you. Know, the brand that's represented by our people and how they behave face-to-face, having got on a plane probably from London to maybe, let's say, Sydney or Singapore is a really significant success factor. So, you know, thinking about how we deal with our carbon footprint there is is kind of interesting, which is why I think this kind of move towards remote working that we're definitely going to see now is going to be a good thing. Um, so, I mean, we do what we can. We just make sure that, you know, if you're going to fly somewhere, you don't just go fly somewhere to see one customer. You go and see 10 customers. That's also good business because it's less cost. So, fine. But other than that, no, not really. 
And fundamentally, what the product is doing is avoiding data rooms full of lots of paper-based documents with people crawling through them in air-conditioned environments. And also, you know, we've built a lot of really sensible collaboration tools into the platform, which you know, we have got some customers, particularly the, some of the big four, for example, where their teams are very distributed across lots of different offices. Uh, and that doesn't need to be all around the world. It could be Belfast, Manchester, London. Um, and actually using technology to draw people together to work together more closely and more collaboratively through the platform is definitely something something that we enable, not really something that we set out to do from for environmental reasons, just to reduce friction. Um, but, you know, work reducing the need for people to get together in the same building in order to effectively work on something is definitely what gets built into all new technology. And Luminance is, is, a, is a global business. You have international offices, international client base. Do you see... Um, diversity in in the customer base is that something you have to react to because i i think that there's there's an inclusivity agenda around your own team but there's also a a need to be inclusive in your customer market as well is that something that you have to consciously work on are there geographical differences there are definitely geographical differences we haven't had to work on it consciously because from day one that came to us um still not 100 percent sure why i think there are a couple of factors though one of them being that we launched at the iba so the International Bar Association has this annual conference, which could be anywhere in the world. Last year, it was Seoul. The week, year before that, it was Rome. The year that we launched, it was Washington, D.C. And we went to the IBA in order to launch the product, which meant that we had lawyers from all around the world coming to see what we were doing. So our first customers were, um, they happened to be um, Norwegian. Then the second one was Dutch. The third one was French. They all came out of that one conference. The next one was in Nairobi. Um, and then, you know, we started to clean up in Sydney and Singapore. So from day one, we've had very, very diverse law firms from all around the world working with us. Um, the fact that the, the technology is language agnostic obviously helps with that. And to be honest, we hadn't really considered that until that first Norwegian law firm came on board and went, hey, can we use this on our Norwegian documents? Went, Actually, yes. There's no reason why you can't. Weird that we didn't think about that. So we've always thought in those terms from day one just because of that. In terms of the diversity within our customer base, it's really interesting. And we see really different patterns of behaviour in different locations. And I've spent a lot of time on those aeroplanes thinking about why that might be. And I think it comes down to the commercial model, actually, that if you look at an Australian law firm, Australian law firms pretty typically now across the board work on fixed price contracts with their clients. So it's a world away from the work, from the London-based law firm who gives a fee estimate, um, which the client then accepts, and then they come in with you know, three times that because that the work took longer than they thought it was going to take, and you you have a negotiation then of you know, what, what you're actually going to pay for it. In Australia, you agree a fixed price, you have to deliver that for that price. So using AI to make sure that you come in within that estimate and don't make a loss is a no-brainer. What's quite interesting there is I launched a bit of a campaign in September last year to talk about the return on investment for AI. And we put together this business case white paper, um, which broke down for our clients. You know, this is the economic impact on your business of using AI. Here's a project done the normal way. Here's a project done using Luminance. This is what it will cost you, the time it will take, and it broke all of that down. 
we've given lots and lots of seminars in London and yeah, and in New York and to some extent in Europe where we have very engaged conversations with law firms and GCs coming together to talk about that and understand the implications of it. We then took that tour to Sydney and the Far East and the feedback was really different. They went, yeah, we know. That's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, it it come it comes back to what's the what's the motivation for innovation in different different markets and uh, you know, risk of risk of generalising. Uh, I do see a difference between UK PLC and other parts of the world. I mean, is that is that something that you've seen? Is is there a is the UK have a particular approach to why it's doing innovation? I think there is a danger um, if you're a big company. And if you're a very profitable company, there is a danger that you will park innovation in a corner. And I always think about the men with the long beards in Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the, you know, the, the famous scientists who get locked up in a tower to come up with some ideas and everyone just forgets that they're there. And they're, they're locked in the corner because those larger corporations have got the, the resources to be able to have a team that can be locked in a corner. And also got the resources to carry on doing things the long way round um, and got the kind of brand recognition that means that their clients will continue to pay them to do things the long the long way rather than being more efficient. And thinking about innovation inside Luminance, is it is it is it is it a process? Um, is it a culture? Is it a program? How do, how do you innovate within your own organization? We just do. Um, I think it's I think it's cultural and I think I'm wary of labelling anything as innovation. I mean, it's never occurred to us within Luminance to label anything as as innovation. But I look at people who work in innovation roles in big corporations, and they're typically extremely frustrated and feel as if they're being less innovative than ever before. Your your attraction to to a role like the one you have at Luminance, was that driven by some frustration with the other solutions you'd seen in the market? You were were in an M&A role beforehand, I believe. Um, yeah, it wasn't really driven by frustration with solutions so much. Um, I think driven by frustration with the outcomes of most due diligence processes, which is really, you know, not much more meaningful understanding of the business than you had before you started, because everything's become very codified and process driven. And actually, how much do you learn through that process? And I think I was on the sharp end of that because I was the one who'd be told I mean, at the, you know, once the deal is done and the champagne corks have popped right, make it work. And very often it just doesn't work in the way that anyone thought it was going to. And the reasons for that will be something that's very obvious, that if you had scratched the surface of that business, I think you know, those. I really like the idea of those equator principles because I think you know, using those to do due diligence would enable you to properly get under the skin of a business and understand what you're dealing with. I um, uh, We had a um, pilot with a London law firm uh, at the beginning of last year which was a perfect example of this, where they um, they had to work really, really fast. Their client was um, buying a competitor. And so they were dashing through the data room, just trying to get a sense of this to be able, the first back to the negotiating table, basically. And they established that actually a really small proportion of this of this organization's customer contracts had any kind of automatic renewal clause. So, of course, what's going to happen? You, know, you buy this business, it's a change of ownership, customers might not like it, and then they'll be off. There's no, yeah, there's, <laughs> yeah, you're going to lose 70% of your customer base in a year's time, potentially. So it completely changes the nature of the deal. Understanding something like that is make or break. And I think <clears throat> the frustration in my role previously was the extent to which there was such limited understanding of what you were looking at. Right. So the, the superficial inquiry. And I think the other thing that's always 
fascinating me about those those types of M&A project is how much uh, time and money is invested in the, the diligence exercise. And then when it comes to the integration role, nobody looks at the report. <laughs> nobody no, nobody goes back. And, and perhaps that's about the value of what's in the report. So this yeah. is where products like Luminance come in and offer something um, more oh, interesting yeah. as an output. I mean, I, I, I used to be told routinely, why, why, A, why do you want to look at that? Why is that relevant? B, I wonder where it is. Um, you know, you spent all this money on this thing, um, and then it just gets um, you know, it just gets shelved somewhere and forgotten about. Yeah, and quite often nobody wants you to find the problem no. <laughs> on either side. Yeah, the so, last thing you want is to find a problem because that'll slow down the deal. Yeah, yeah exactly. So I, I'm interested to come back to return on investment. I mean, we 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 picked out in our future fundamentals report, which was the the 12 month review of the 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 output from the Zebra project, that. Um, Perhaps there was a, there was more of a need to for action and less time for reflection on the role of technology and AI. And there was a there was a, an RSA YouGov survey uh, in 2017 which said that only 14 percent of UK businesses were actively involved in an AI over or a robotics project, but substantially more were talking about it. How mm-hmm. how do we get how do we get that from a conversation to action? And, and how important is the ability to articulate the ROI and have a process around that in driving forward progress? I think you've just, you know, it comes back to you've got to have a need. You know, there's no point to sort of you know, trying to you know, apply a solution to a problem that doesn't exist. You know, what problem are you trying to solve? Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's odd that so many businesses have kind of left that stage out of the process when they're thinking, let's adopt AI. I mean, sure, you need to go and understand what the technology could mean for you. And of course, there's that process of you know, what's out there? What could this mean? How do we gain competitive advantage for this? But I think you know, it tends to stop at what's out there at the moment. When we first launched, somebody said to me, there are a lot of people making a lot of money out of AI in London in the legal profession, and they're all conference organisers. And I think that's largely still true. Definitely resonates. Yeah. What what have been the most successful outcomes that you've seen in your own customer base? Oh, I think it just comes back to, you know, that sort of, you know, top tier Danish law firm saying, I did 10 extra projects last month. Yeah, I think, yeah, that that's that's what this is all about. Um, and also I'm taking on work that I would never have been able to take on because the scale of it would have just been impossible for us to deliver with the kinds of resources that we have. Um, and then that's, you know, and then that pilot example that I talked about just now, you know, we prevented our client from accidentally buying a lemon. <laughs> that's what Simple this should be about at the end of the day. Um, that's the point of the technology. Provide a better service, and you know, you've got to, you can be the best lawyer you can. Yeah, you, know, you could possibly be like that. So one of the things that we're very uh, keen to do is is help our listeners um, create the board agenda for the next chapter. When we clearly we live in uncertain times, what's what's on the board agenda for Luminance? What next? Ah, uh, right. Um, so the in-house community. So yeah, we've got a lot of law firms working with us now. Um, I think the next thing is, you know, how do we bring the benefits of AI to the in-house community who arguably need it more, but have less time to, you know, spin up a team to go and analyse what's out there. So it's a very different process engaging with that, with, with those kinds of lawyers. And if you had one one tip for people who are thinking about how can I use technology in my business more, what, what would that be? Ask yourself what problem it solves and then measure you know, figure out how do you measure whether or not this is actually solving the problem. 
and then measure that. Perfect. Emily, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, some great insights there and uh, wish you every success in continuing to scale an already hugely successful business. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.